Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. But what does it mean for the language to be pure? Or when people say they want English to be pure, what are they talking about? Is Shakespeare pure? I mean, in fact, every stage of history, language is there is no such thing as a language. There are lots of different words of speaking that different people have. Men will still say, this was And welcome to episode number one of the Everything Keys. This series attempts to establish a number of uh, things about the language work that not only I'm doing, but I'm going to be joined by a fellow researcher who has a, a very different background. And over the course of his research, uh, he came upon my work and one thing we found after talking was that there are a lot of very similar things that we would like to discover and that the language of the Bible, including other old languages, hold much of the keys to understanding everything that we need to understand. Um, what we're going to be doing for some time is actually going over, uh, not in the sense of uh, particularly uh, reading through, but definitely hitting and digesting uh, a number of the more important points to a book by the name of The Hebraic Tongue Restored by an author who went by the pen name Fibre de Olivet. Uh, before I get into that, though, I want to introduce everybody who doesn't know to Nathan. He's going to be accompanying me on these recordings. They are ostensibly um, me having a conversation with Nathan about uh, the points of this book and what I've discovered in working with Obrey the last couple of years. And what he's going to bring to it is his own unique perspective uh, from his line of research that he's been doing. So before we continue on, Nathan, if you could um, run through again what it is that that you have been researching, uh, why you even uh, happened upon uh, my work in the area that, that I'm in, um, and and what you're hoping to accomplish, and what maybe uh, what maybe some of your theories are, considering all that that you've learned so far, and how you've put things together. Well, I'm Nathan. Hello, everyone. Now, I 
came across your work, Jonathan, when I began to look at the LDS, when I began to look at the Bible in America, when I began to see that not only has the geography been changed, but the keys to understanding that change are buried deep. And when I had been looking into everything, I, I came across the same roadblock every single time. This all became research that led me straight to the same point, which is the first source, the first source in many instances, is a book that I can't read. And it is, it's difficult to take the word of another, especially when you have to trust someone you don't know and someone whose intentions are, are questionable to give you the information you seek to oust them. And that's, that's a really tough one. And so between your views, between your views on the Mormonism Judaism collection, uh, your findings, which strangely your, your findings in America concerning the LDS, uh, the geographical refacing of not only this nation, but almost all of them. Yeah. And, how that ties into history and eventually circles right back around to scripture. Mm -hmm. um, we had come across the same points independently. And that means there's something to it because I come from uh, a years long hunt for an empire that seems to have been erased yeah. and to have come across the same points as you and and come to the same conclusions means there must be something there. Yeah. Yeah, and it's always uh, a great sort of uh, affirming moment when you come across other people's work that either in a large way or maybe just in small points affirm what you've been saying or thinking or suspecting. Um. And, you know, I don't know how it always is for you, but but for me, oftentimes uh, when I find those things, they're like eureka moments. Um, these these huge pieces of a missing puzzle that I've been suspecting uh, all of a sudden come into view. Um, now, I know that uh, they some people out there have taken it upon themselves to blanket um, the areas of research that you're talking about that you were in for some time, to blanket it as being about Tartaria per se. Um, it seems to me personally that it's far broader than, than that, uh, just based on some of the theories I've heard, and there's actually a lot of theories uh, out there. Um, and the same thing with catastrophism that um, it's, again, been given a name that almost seems like it steers the narrative, um, whereas there is a very uh, vital purpose to the study of catastrophes, um, uh, catastrophes by liquefaction, 
um, or any type of catastrophes because they can play a, a huge role in refacing a land. Uh, lands that weren't there might be there afterwards. Lands that were there might be gone. Um, entire uh, ecosystems can be changed by either a serious catastrophe or a series of catastrophes. So I think that, you know, the last episode of The Bible and Obrey I made, I went over this at, at length, and I think they're it's like really vital areas of research. And I, I believed from the start that they would harmonize with mine. And the reason for that is this. Um, what I'm seeing... Uh, as far as what I've been able to understand from the Bible and studying the Bible in Obrey, uh, is that we're, we're talking about a book that is recording the doings of a particular people, a particular kind of people, a race. Um, and it's pretty broad in the sense that if we understand that the three patriarchs of a man named Noah dispersed widely and it doesn't take you don't have to have a great imagination to see this happening because we know that wherever our peoples have gone or been they are sailors they are builders they are developers it's just how we're made and it's just what we do so i expected to find something very ubiquitous in culture in uh, architecture, in in language to a certain degree, except I did expect for those languages to be very different because of how quickly man's language can, uh, if whether you want to call it devolve or change. The thing is, these these areas do very much harmonize with one another, and I think that those who are doing honest research are finding that the findings of others doing honest research are becoming more and more harmonious. And this is an area that I think is, is very, very important. And I don't know that I've really done or been able to express to anybody the way that I would like to express to everyone, uh, the way that I'm seeing Obrey working, because we have to understand that language. And unfortunately, the way we understand language today is a lot different than older languages or other languages. But I think it'd probably be more proper to say older languages. And that's something that Olivet goes over in his book. Not only does he sometimes make certain points that are going to really leap us forward in our understanding of the way this language works and how different it is from English, but it's his footnotes, uh, which usually for anybody who's a kind of a serious reader of older books or maybe even newer books, they'll know the sort of gold mine that is in the footnotes. It's why if I come across the book and it's and it's supposed to be a serious research book and it doesn't have footnotes, I it's really hard for you to get me to read it because I want to see those sources because those sources are what lead 
to the springs, uh, you know. Um, so you looked into, and by the way, everyone, I'm going to be posting a link to the book uh, that we're going to be using as just basically a guide to bring out uh, certain very important points and truths about older languages and, and Obri in particular, so that people can actually read along uh, if they choose to and know what we're talking about as we go. But uh, I asked if you would uh, check the book out, just look at the, the structure, what he, he has within it, and then look into him a bit, the author, uh, Febre de Olivet, as he went under his pen name. Um, so what exactly did you find out uh, between then and now? So initially, and this happens all the time, I found the first thing that I found when I looked at him, I found that he has connotations based on three principles for the way uh, man is. Uh-huh. Uh, intellectual metaphysical constitution of man. Yeah. This is a work from 1822. It's the first thing I dove into um, because I promised myself I'd read the book or leave the book alone that we're <laughs> going to dig into. I was like, yeah. don't read ahead. Just get a feel for this guy. And the first thing I think of when I see the constitution of man, according to Fabre, this, this is in 1822 exactly what Nassim Harriman is talking about in all of his money-grubbing lectures. And in mm -hmm. fact, every other sophist. Mm -hmm. and, and it just <laughs> shows me that, that at the core of his little diagram is the key to the snake oil salesman that I've been looking at and having to discern between for the past year. Yeah. And, and to show that this work isn't new, this work hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. And it just makes me think how far back before and beyond him does it go? Because mm -hmm. he, he shows in this constitution of man, he shows what splits off into fractal from a single circle and will eventually be the flower of life which mm -hmm. is that famous symbol everyone who who thinks they've stumbled on the magic formula says all the buzzwords to their friends so that we can have that street cred mm -hmm. they say sacred geometry oh have you seen so and so or have you seen this oh yeah the flower of life and vibration mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then when they're done with the buzzwords nothing of substance was said yeah. And so this this makes me <laughs> makes me in my initial search of Fabre uh, quite suspicious. Mm -hmm. However, given that everyone tries to quantify the everything, I mean that's that's pretty universal among people's works when they proliferate. Yeah. Um, yeah. What I began to find when I looked at the book proper is that not only does he in the very beginning I read the introductory dissertation 
and mm-hmm. and I think I think it's glorious. Mm-hmm. I really do. Um, but within the first two pages, he not only has given an overview of what was known at the time to his scholars, but then he goes to cite other people who I can now look at and look at their life history. Bishop Walton Mm -hmm. um, was the first name I came across. Then Richard Simon, the priest. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then um, Diodorus, of course, Lucretius. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. But then there and J.J. Russo, but there's one name in particular that interested me. What's that? I am scrolling to find it. Sure. And you know, here's I'm going to say while you're doing that that that's the um, there's sort of a beauty in the work of these sophists and occultists that I hope more people will come to appreciate. Um, I started reading sophists and occultists some time ago because there there literally existed nothing in plain language and truthfulness for me to glean uh, any good information from. And I had to start reading them. And what I found out, like, for instance, in the works of A.E. Waite, who was one of the most popular occultists from uh, the late, he, he would have been mm-hmm. post, post-Olivet, is that Although these people have no intentions um, of revealing to the the goyim, the cattle, uh, what exactly is going on in their world, they they do, however, take a great deal of pride in what they do, as in pride, as in the downfall of of anyone, and. So it's it's really great how much they give away if you're willing, uh, if anyone's willing to stick in there and pay very close attention to what they say and think about why they're saying it. You know, obviously, uh, Olivet did not reveal the Hebraic language long been lost and distorted. However, what he gives away is very very valuable. Uh, I would say that it would be an error for us to say if someone was a sophist or an occultist that it is not productive to read their works. You just have to know how to read them. Um, go ahead. Did you find that that other name that you thought I was did. Okay. And also, I agree on that. This is um, this is the pearl of infinite wisdom. Mm-hmm. And it's hidden everywhere. And discernment is the key to finding it. But you don't find the pearl in a treasure chest. You find the pearl in a trash heap. Right. So, Sir William Jones appears yes. to be his, uh, his most blatant adversary. <laughs> it's as if uh, through the correction of Sir William Jones, he will make his name with this book. And uh-huh. I, I thought that was interesting. Uh-huh. I was wondering if you were going to name Jones or not because he refers to him so much, but yeah. Yeah. That just um it depending on what I find through the rest of this book, um mm-hmm. this will dictate how I go into research on on Jones. 
because mm -hmm. right now with the opening dissertation, I'm inclined to to treat Jones's work with sincerity because I, I have a, a blatant mistrust of Fabre because I've saw oh, yeah. his diagram on consciousness and I'm aware of his yeah. meanings. Yeah. So right and, now Jones mm -hmm. appears to be something something that I could trust a bit more. Now we'll see how mm -hmm. that changes. But. Yeah. And he was a, a, a huge influence on occultists that followed him. Febre was. Um, probably they admired him very much. And, you know, there is a, uh, a principle in the occult. Uh, some have cited it just to Freemasonry, but in, in occult in general, that is called artful speaking. Uh, artful speaking or writing. When, when somebody is so adept that they can speak or write in a, in a way so artful as to conceal to the goyim what they're revealing to the other adepts, um, that is considered a very uh, laudable quality among these people. So it's very yes. obvious why they would uh, have Febre as, uh, or Olivet as, as such a uh, an, an idol, a figure. Plus, he did that. He's so well known for the uh, what is it? The thirty-six. Uh, come on, it's um, what's his name? Um, you know, Pythagoras, the thirty-six golden verses. Mm -hmm. And and both of these works, by the way, for anybody who's listening, who speaks French as a first or second language, that wants to get this book in the French and read it in the French to see what kind of discrepancies there are, uh, feel free to email me. Uh, the, the email address for the Obrey Project is always in the description. Um, anybody who comes across anything that we don't, that they, they think is an item of great importance, feel free to email me and I will forward it to Nathan and uh, you know we'll definitely pay attention to it, whether we get to it or not. But please do. Because you know, the more people that put their mind to this, uh, the better, because there's a lot of wisdom in, in many counselors. So don't feel afraid. Uh, now, if it's just cor maybe correcting something grammatical that's, you know, secondary or tertiary, maybe hold back. But uh, we can miss things, definitely miss things. Um, now, I did want to give everybody a little bit of a um, the, the Wikipedia version of um of Olivet or de Olivet so they they get a feeling for him anyways and the the publisher I did bring up the publisher's page as well because they're important too you can see so much not only in the uh what you can extract from the author's biography but definitely who the publisher is so they say that Olivet was born in 1767, and he died in 1825. He was a Parisian French author, poet, and composer whose biblical and philosophical hermeneutics influenced many occultists. Hermeneutics. Now, this was something that I was stumbling over years ago, was hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the golden calf of so many evangelical, uh, biblical apologists, highfalutin professors and authors, they worship their hermeneutic. And it, it cracks me up, too, to hear these guys who put on these righteous robes and talk so much about proper hermeneutics, because the irony is 
they must know the the core of that word where it comes from from Hermes and the knowledge gotten from Hermes that word in itself is entirely occult um they said his best known works are the research of the Hebrew language the history of the human race uh which you went over a little bit concerning his views on man which are utterly occult and in fact, uh, when you look at some of his views on, on man and the creation and languages and all that, what comes to my mind is the, uh, the Zohar and the tree of life from the Zohar, for anybody who's familiar with that. It's the same kind of occultism. Um, so just to, to go over his, his bio real quick, and it's brief is that uh, he was born Antoine Faber, and he took on his mother's maiden name, De Olivet. For anybody who's not familiar, De Olivet or Olivet, Olive, those are typically Jewish names. Um, he dropped the name Antoine and just went by Fabre de Olivet. Um, so he was born in, I guess it's Languedoc, the province in southern France, uh, they say when he reached the age of 11 or 12, he was sent to Paris by his father. Now pay attention, a businessman in the international silk industry. If red flags aren't going up, you aren't awake. Who wished his son to receive a good education and assist the family business. Right. He spent five years in the French capital where he learned Latin, Greek, and English. Uh, having completed his studies in 1786, he traveled as a salesman for his father's company, learning German in the process. Uh, with little commercial success during his travels, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, the story is that his father's business uh, went tits up, to put it nicely, and um, uh, he became more and more involved in the arts and, of course, in writing. Um, thinking this book was about one of his last tomes, and it is a major work clocking in somewhere around 800 pages. Fortunately, they're not gigantic pages, but that's pretty big, either which way. Um, this is currently printed by, and I'm going to have to imagine it was printed by them from the start because they've been around at least as long. It is G.P. Putnam's Sons. So anybody should look into G.P. Putnam's Sons. The reason, some some of the, the connections that one might make with uh, Putnam's Sons, first off, the name Putnam. Um, I don't think it's an error for people to look around at other people with that same last name. That's probably very wise when you can't do thorough genealogy searches. At least do that. Find out other people named Putnam and what they've been into. Now, the interesting thing is he was involved with another guy named Wiley, who later um, opened a publisher called Wiley and Sons. The interesting thing about that for me is there's a guy by the name of Wiley who authored some serious books on Protestantism. Um, he was said to be a Scot and a Protestant, probably a Presbyterian. But he basically authored the books which are considered like the base um, go-to books for Protestantism, Catholicism, and the whole idea of identifying Catholicism as the Antichrist and all that, J.A. Wiley. 
Um, and he authored smaller books like The Papacy is the Antichrist and all that. Is he directly related to this Wiley or not? I don't know. But I always pay attention to names and who else has those names. Um, one thing people will probably recognize quicker than anything else is that Putnam has everything to do with Penguin books. For those who are familiar with the stuff that Penguin group puts out, they're going to get a good feel for <laughs> Putnam Sons and what they're up to. Um, you know, there's always a trail with any of this that should tell you a lot about the book. It should tell you a lot about the author and it should tell you a lot about what they plan on accomplishing. Do they want to enlighten the world? Do they want world peace? Do they want everyone fed, you know, or do they want to keep the world in darkness to starve all the cattle and just enrich themselves? You can tell all of that usually just by seeing who published it. <laughs> Funny enough. <clears throat> Excuse me. Okay, so to the book, it was translated as well as his uh, the 32 verses by Pythagoras, both of them translated by, I believe it's a female translator, and Nayanne Louise Redfield. <clears throat> that name again. Uh, we're going to find uh, names in a particular class of people. Uh, surrounding this work, which one thing that's really odd about that, and uh, I'm just saying this basically conversationally to you, Nathan, because we tend to have good conversations. Um, I want to keep it kind of like that, but but try to be rigid enough, I guess, to, to get through some of this is um, mm -hmm. the thing about this is uh, what was I going to say about Redfield? I interrupted myself and then, I, of course, I lost my train. Um Hmm. What the heck was I going to say? I don't know. But did you did you do any looking at Redfield or anybody else involved in oh. this? The publishers? Did you, you find anything saying, else out about that? Yeah. You were saying uh, in regards to Redfield that there are specific types of names attached to this kind of work. There are. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I was saying. Um, and that's the thing. You're going to find that. You're going to find that in all these works that even the even the books that are written by uh, ministers, you know, that that have a master of arts in in divinity. You're going to find this. Uh, there are a few authors out there that are overtly Jewish. Uh, there's a Jewish attorney that wrote a book called Hebrew is Greek back in the 1970s. Um, but the thing is, you'll find them. They're identifying as Jewish, some of them, that are going to be very uh, inextricably linked with the publishing business and the business of translating. Um, to, to be honest with you, um, I don't know about... See, Jews are not necessarily a homogenous group of people. They're actually about five or six different kinds of people, sort of racially. Uh, I don't know if that's actually been uh, a term that has been applied or, or taken on a people because it was something that was maybe given more respect by the, the burgeoning Christian population. 
Uh, and so that's why it was done. But we have to remember, there are also a lot of other tribes of people that are of a similar race as us. Uh, just in the Bible alone, there are the people of Mitzrim who were promised to be spread all over the world. Their whole empire was going to come down and they were going to be spread all over the world. The same with the people of Asher or Assyria. Um, so I think there's a lot to be learned in, in all of this beyond the language in the in the in the area of just secret societies and the occult and who these people are and where they come from. Because just putting a tag on all of this as Jewry is probably a bit too simplistic. Very um, much so. Yeah. And I'm There's... not I'm not trying to take away necessarily that there are a people that identify as Jewish that are definitely at the head of a lot of things. That's true. But putting everything either under the tag of Jewry that's bad and definitely putting everything under the tag of whiteness as good is very erroneous. You're going to lead to failure. Same, that is the same fallacy that's used against everyone unfairly as well. I mean, Correct. everything that has to do with with pride or understanding of the Germanic peoples falls under neo-Nazi today. And there's no way around that. Yeah, no way at all. And it's a lumping in. Whereas with um, we can say the the tribes, the types of Jew, I mean, Ashkenazi, Sephardic. Well, we also have the Uyghur Tartars. We also have the Manchu Tartars. And so this this idea of they belong under this moniker, but they are distinct because they are one tribe over here, one tribe over there. Mm -hmm. And nuance is the death of the overview, but you can't understand something without being forced to acknowledge the nuance. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um, if if people will, because there's definitely a, there's a dialect be, there's a dialectic being built today. The dialectic is basically if it's in Christian identity or if it's just in white nationalism. That dialectic is basically white good, Jewish bad, or if they want to say black or any other race bad. Whatever that dialectic is, they're leading you down the primrose path because you have to remember something. Um, for everybody out there who looks as the, at, to the Bible as historic, uh, your, your one main chief guide, keep in mind all of these people within are racially homogenous. Okay? And they were divided very early on by language. That was the thing that divided them. We see this very same thing today. We have racially homogenous people all through Europe and upper Asia, I guess until they started expanding out to South Africa, Australia, and the Americas, that were mostly divided by language, even when they weren't divided necessarily by culture. And I think the reason to keep that in mind is because there really are very real factions that we see 
in what is perceived as Jewry, not only today, but for centuries. Uh, I believe that there's a, a few different reasons to that. One is just because it, it has been very profitable for certain people to adopt that moniker, such as the Ashkenazim. Uh, they seem to be like the most, uh, they seem like the, the, the most prime suspect to this just because of the whole Khazarian thing. I don't know how much of that is actual factual stuff, to be honest with you. Khazaria uh, existed in and basically was said to have fallen in, in the basically the worst years possible for anyone to even try to prove existed. And that was between the 7th to 10th century. Um, even though I think there was more time that has been added, those particular centuries right there are basically the pit of hell as far as provable history goes. To, um, let's see. It's, it's insane, actually. Yeah. Those... Those are intellectual dark ages. And, and mm -hmm. to pull something out of that mock is right now wholly futile. I mean, there, there are other uh -huh. things that we can accomplish, but when we get back into that, my goodness. I mean, everything there has led me to the same dead end, uh, glossed over, and written by the same small group of people uh -huh. who then have had their apprentices or their successors study their small body of work yeah. and write their ideas based only on that work, not yeah. any, not anything else. It's like, sure. here are 10 guys, each of you, would you write a book report based on one idea presented in the single book we have on the subject? And right. that's, that's our history from that Correct. time. I mean, yes. it's infuriating. It is. Hey, you know what? Uh, just by, and it has to be coincidence, right? Uh, during those same uh, phantom years, the, it, that was when these Masoretic rabbis were said to have standardized the text. What they call standardization of the text, adding their punctuation to the initial character, and I believe at the same time, this is when they changed it from the old character, which looked very much like our modern characters that we call letters. They changed it from that into more of a calligraphic block script. Um, these, the, this is when it was said to have happened. In fact, if you go and just uh, just do a Google on Masoretic, they'll tell you that they standardized, so-called, the Hebrew text from around the 6th, 7th century to about the 10th century. I mean, right there in the navel of nowhere is where they were said to have done this uh, brilliant work. So, hey, you know... And speaking of what you were saying, I think people would do themselves a lot of good to pay attention to, if they can't get Emmett Scott's A Guide to the Phantom Dark Age online, because I've never looked for it online, I've always had the hard copy, it's not that much to buy it. Pay attention to not only his, but also Fomenko's doublings. They may not all be correct, but there are so many of them that they can't be ignored. And I know there that are, yes, there are profuse ones. 
the Ferdinand Isabella Trinity, where there were three of them separated by a thousand years and in some cases geographical separation. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is this is almost a joke, but it leads to historical dissonance when anyone tries to tackle this Ferdinand Isabella thing. Mm-hmm. That's that's the most famous one that I can conceive. Yeah, three times. <laughs> well, Charlemagne's a big one, but that's just a double. So that's the Carolingians or the Merovingians. Uh-huh. And uh, Scott does a great job, by the way, at charting those things. And he does it really differently than Fomenko does. Um, I have to say, I'm a little more uh, apt to trust certain assertions of Scott's, though I don't trust them all, than Fomenko. Because Fomenko, I mean, it's like he he's like a bull in a china shop when it comes to history (laughs) and geography. Um, You know, I don't know what kind of a, because obviously it was a team of people doing it with basically him at at sort of the helm. Um, But really that's, that's what it seemed like. His book was more like just wrecking the crap out of everything and making some decent assertions in the meantime. But a boy, you know, I I think Scott was a little more, um, coherent (laughs) yes um so just taking volume one into account um fomenko has a break it somebody else fix it mentality yeah and it's just this is wrong that's wrong this is wrong that's wrong but sometimes he throws the baby out with the bathwater. yeah and although there's there's quite a bit uh, to be looked into um, goodness, what was it you were speaking of just now? Yes. Um, the guide to the Phantom Dark Age, you actually, you read that in its entirety. And yeah, I lost a, a week of my spare time to that. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's been widely shared, but this is, um, these two authors are sort of the primer for what people say they believe but have never looked into and so yeah. the fact that you the fact that you have read those and they're available in an audio format um mm-hmm. has been a boon to a lot of people yeah you I, know and i've told everybody because i've got books to get i've through. gotten a lot they yeah and and you know what else they are i mean it First off, getting to, and I've heard that actually they're becoming a little bit harder to acquire. I've got both of them in hard, um, well, not hardback, Guide to Phantom Dark Age hardback, but I have them both in paper. Now, I prefer paper whenever I can. Um, mm-hmm. The thing is about those is not only are they getting a little bit harder to get to, but um, the information itself is somewhat inaccessible, especially Fomenko's, especially when he gets into the maxima correlation principle. Um, and you know, when I read those, I approached them really as a regular guy. I have a decent vocabulary. I have a decent comprehension. Um, but the thing is I want somebody to communicate with me as, as regular and normal as they can. Um, and I tried to do what I could to, sort of translate it there. Now, the people who don't like the biblical aspect that I put into it, and the thing is, when I was reading Guide to the Phantom Dark Age, 
Um, I kind of had my eye on Rome as the boogeyman, whereas in um, Fomenko, uh, it was more Jewry. But the thing is, you know, all of that extra stuff, I've told people so many times that have uh, complained about my particular worldview. And I'm going to say this again, just in case anybody hasn't heard it. If you want to take all of that material and download it and cut the uh, the commentary sections out by me and republish it, feel free. I don't own any of that stuff. I, I haven't profited off of it in any way. Um, and it's just that nobody else was doing it. And the thing is, I can't just read a book without commenting on it. Not not unless I'm being paid to do it or something. I just can't keep my mouth shut. I'm going to have an opinion. <laughs> so there you go. Um, no, that's, go. Go ahead. That's one of the things about those books and any work like that. So I, I have found the hard way that most research, imagine my air quotes for that word, that most yeah. research is a horde, an army, sometimes a legion of cherry pickers who have been trained in this dopamine-addicted Facebook like, share, subscribe, one like equals one prayer world where they walk into a book en masse and then spend the next month showing each other the random passages they've cherry-picked and citing the book as a whole as mm -hmm. something that everyone must devour, everyone must have. And yeah. it's like it's Oprah's book club for truthers. <laughs> and there is, there is no truther community. There are people that do the hard work, and they are few and far between. There yeah. is a, a wolf pack on YouTube. There's a wolf pack for every subject. And good luck if you cross them. Yeah. And then there is the unsuspecting individual who doesn't realize that they've traded one farm for another. And yeah. then, we have, then we have something rare. And that is someone who comes and reads the whole book. That's it. And has yeah. an opinion that you didn't get from right. someone else. Who has their own thoughts on that? And I've spent a year of my life attempting to meet and collect this last type of individual to help me hunt. Mm -hmm. They'll, they'll actually be in here. And I've shared just snippets of this, um, circling back to the book, shared just snippets of it. And they have devoured it because of the implications. I mean, it's been the source of conversation for a couple days now. Just mm -hmm. a few passages. The fact that De yeah. Olivier says in one part that he omitted Uyghuric Tartaric language from Why? this. He omitted Why? it because they don't have a Bible. Because they don't have a religious book. Exactly. They don't it's have not a Bible. that important. It's not that important because <clears throat> they don't have a religious book. Which is kind of insane. ridiculous, isn't it? <laughs> there's, well, there's yeah. three things that came out of this immediately. Yeah. Um, my, my researcher who does star forts yeah. and uh, geography, mm -hmm. especially ancient structures, he is 
intimately familiar with nomadics. And he said that nomads and people with a heavy oral tradition would not write something down to protect it, to keep it sacred, because it cannot be changed. The word lives through flesh. Mm-hmm. Of course, this falls victim to genocide, to catastrophe. Yeah. That could be one thing. Another point from this not only does Fabre intensely shit talk the Uyghuric Tartar, mm. he, he isn't the first to do so. <clears throat> now, there's another one, Heinlein, who in his section on the Tartars basically calls them the devil incarnate, brutes who mm. know nothing and think nothing. And... Mm and sex and food and murder Mm -hmm. is all they are familiar with. And they roam and they are savages. Now, there's only... In fact, we never hear anything good about the Tartars. And there's only two other peoples that I have ever come across that have received such a a cold welcome in -hmm. history. That is... All of the tribes of heathens and savages in America mm-hmm. and the Germanic peoples. Mm-hmm. Good luck finding someone who can espouse the virtues of Germany. Yeah. Historically. Yeah. And so this, this is an instant suspicious point yeah. because no one has anything good to say about it. No, Tartar, no. Absolutely not. I mean, in fact, in the New Testament, you'll find the word tartaru actually used, they say, as a verb. However, I have my own uh, theory on that passage. It's when um, Peter is speaking of angels. And people have to keep in mind that angels are not just heavenly beings. They're emissaries. They're messengers. They are, when one person wants to communicate with another in any way, they might send their agalos, or they're in the obri malak, okay? There's a passage that says that these agalos, which did not or chose not to keep their first estate, were cast to Tartaru. Now, was that word by that time? Because it was actually what we know today as Tartarus ruling over them and not Rome. I know the word that's used when they talk about the people ruling over them in the New Testament is Roma, which could actually just be a transliteration from the Obery meaning height, overlords, Roma, okay? Or Roma being one of the sons, actually grandsons of Ham, could have been one of the tribes that was part of a confederacy, which was known as Tartar or Tartarus. I don't know, but there certainly is a lot that can be learned and understood if we want to take the time and we have the ability to get rid of all of our preconceptions about what the Bible says. And look into what maybe it really reads instead. Yeah. And 
the greatest mistake, as maybe in the way of a hook here, the greatest mistake that anybody can make when considering how little we may know about what the Bible's actually saying. And I know I do this almost every time, but I have to because people get so upset. I'm not saying we can't understand anything. I'm saying that the devil is in the details. It We've gotten this very bad point of view concerning the language used in the Bible, not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. Koine Greek has its own big old set of problems too, folks. But the thing is, it's, it's, it's the peak of error to think that you can take a language that was not only written in pictograms or, or ideographs or hieroglyphics, wh whatever you want to call it, that you could take that language and that you could find its appropriate equivalence in not only a language that is a purely phonetic language, that means a language just made of sounds where the words are given, the, the definitions of the words are dictated by whoever it is that writes the dictionaries. Not only that, but a language that was spawned from another language that was actually the end result of various languages. And then they took about 27% of that language and added the rest, the other three quarters, they added in terminology from all kinds of other languages. The people who did this knew languages so well they knew that they were contriving one of the most beautiful languages to confuse and keep people in the dark because your imagination, your mental processes, how you perceive things and what you think, let's just say what you even think or dream or imagine as possible is all limited by your language language. People don't seem to understand that these people knew a long time ago they could build a prison for our minds through a language. Yes. So you have that's, to understand. Go ahead. I'm sorry. That's why it's called the art. It's a spell. Yes. And that's, I mean, that's there's a lot to basically that. a buzzword sentence, but there is such truth in it. I mean, even if you're to nail it down to a certainty, when you put mm -hmm. spin on a bad story, you make it seem a little better. Not so bad. Maybe even good for a different reason. Mm -hmm. And this is spell work. That is the art. Yeah. We've been born, and successive generations of us now have been born under the yoke of Newspeak. Yes. Precisely. And that's that's exactly what, again, George Orwell, who I believe has had ties to Masons or the occult. Again, these people have their own art form that they use. 
they tell the cattle one thing and they communicate something entirely different to one another. And he had the Newspeak Dictionary. And he showed how they were able to change the very core processes, those rudimentary workings of the mind by restricting language. Now, somebody who thinks that you can go from a language that was entirely pictographic and in saying this, what I am implying is that this language has its own built-in fail-safes. That means nobody can play with it. And I think for the most part, a lot of these people were quite afraid of playing with the language itself. That's why they put punctuation on it instead of changing it. They were afraid of being accursed by changing the language because there are warnings not to. So keep in mind, they don't necessarily change it. There might be some issues with some missing verses here and there. That happens from manuscript to manuscript. It just does. However, I think they were careful to not necessarily change it. They kept the characters. They may have turned it into a calligraphic block script, but they kept the characters. They just put a punctuation over it. However, in the first place, that was an ideographic script. They meant something. Every single so-called letter glyph had inherent meaning. It had inherent value. When a language is built off of characters that have inherent value and meaning, you can't, first off, fool with them the same way that you can fool with our modern phonetic languages. You can fool with them like crazy. You can make up new words if you want. You can change the meaning of one word to another thing. You can entirely change uh, the mindset that someone has by tweaking the language. You can't do that with a static, ideographic script. It's just not possible. So to think that you can go from a language that's based on a static, ideographic form that has built-in fail-safes to keep anybody from fooling with the meanings of the words to you're going to get an equivalent in English. Maybe one of the most um, divisive, uh, aggressive, and malicious languages ever contrived. You're never going to get the equivalent. I'm sorry to tell everyone who's the people who are expecting like the great English translation of the Bible to come out, they are going to be disappointed. It won't happen. I'm no. sorry. We, and this, I, I'm really glad you said that. This right here isn't for me to take the words and turn them into English words. Mm -hmm. I, I don't want that. I want to look at it and understand what those words are. Mm -hmm. and learning a new language and in fact learning different forms of communication requires different mindsets I'd like to be able to look at the glyph set and not read it in English in my head <laughs> precisely I, I, want, I want to see it and have the implied meaning as it I is mean, there's, 
It's the difference between it's the difference between extracting what information we can from there and trying to fumble with it and get it into our native tongue. The difference between doing that and getting our minds expanded into that language. That's the difference. We need to get our mind into that language as opposed to extracting it into the language that we currently speak. Yes. And I've been, I've been trying to quantify the importance of the thing because, well, it, it fascinates me and I can't shut up about it. And I've had the most success by calling it the first emoji mm-hmm. because right now the world lives off of emojis. It is a quick glyph set yeah. and the connotations yes. implied when you read an emoji as a reply or you get emojis it's the whole thing and yet it, it's it says fluid. Yeah. yeah it's insane but that's yes. the closest correlation that is that has helped me to explain this succinctly it's um mm-hmm. it's strange that that's my argument for how important it is because there were old world emojis and if we can read them we can stop trusting the translations of people mm. we claim to not trust. Yeah. And what people need to, to also get, and I'm, I'm going to do what I can in this first one to, to put as many hooks in there as I can to, to really, um, light a fire in people's minds to, to why this is so important. Um, the, the fact is that in English or any other language like it in Germanics or our current Latin derivative language, which most of them are either that. They're either uh, Germanic derivatives or Latin derivative languages. Um, The problem is you may get in some of those languages a purer form of actions and things and so on. The problem is you're, you're not going to somehow be able to communicate in those languages uh, let's just say how a wall walls or how um, or how food foods. I know that sounds weird, but the problem is we're talking about a language structured in a, a way that's so different. It's the reason that I had to start saying early on that Obery was made up of these things called universal words. I first off, I called them complete words because what you would see is and and by the way, um, Olivet and I know you say Olivet because it's French. Um, he uh, he touches on this, by the way, and he takes us through the. I want to call it the de-evolution of language by actually making it far more complex. You see, today we have so many forms in our language. The sentences I just spoke for the last minute or so, they have so many different items in them. They have verbs, they have nouns, they have prepositions, they have conjunctions, they have objects and subjects, uh, they have various structures of those objects and subjects, different kinds of verbs, present, past tense, verbs, future tense, okay? 
we have not only a language that has limited our thought processes, but at the same time, it is a language that is so complex in features and form and rules that it has no natural flow or understanding to it. Once people can get can get their mind around something like the fact that you name something based on its attribute and action, you're going to start to understand Aubrey. Something is named based on what it does or is. That is why, if we're going to, to kind of stay in the realm of noun and verb, that is precisely why the same word is used not only as a noun, but as a verb, and also as an adjective or adverb, speaking in our, our common modern talk. Yes. Oh, that's one of the keys to understanding this language. And it's quite possible that that's one of the keys to understanding many of these antiquated language forms. That's, that's, ah, there's so much to say in reply to this. First off, yes. Uh, what is it? Describe it. You can give something a chief attribute, but cat is the example I always think of when that comes. Le chat noir, the black cat, the cat is black. Mm -hmm. To move cat-like. Mm -hmm. And this, this has a million connotations, but that's what's interesting about our current languages right now that they are so specialized and and so full of rules that are quite frankly unspoken if you were to ask a fluent speaker of the english tongue to say a 15 word sentence and then break that down and tell us what the words mean they couldn't not most of them and mm -hmm. not only that but that's why we butcher so many sentences because we're trying to convey an idea and use the proper words. And our brain is racked for 40 different circumstances and conditions yes. as we speak. Yeah. And this leads to all of the, the newspeak issues we have. We mm -hmm. actually have boiled this down uh, where I work. We have boiled this down to a single hashtag. And it's just called Babel Effect. It, mm -hmm. it not only means I'm struggling for the words, it also means chill out, same team. It also means I think we're in agreement and we didn't realize it. Mm -hmm. And it's the Babel effect. Mm -hmm. So in a, this, this idea about language too, that, that there's a separation between formal and informal. Mm -hmm. Um, when you're with two people who have been raised together, most of their conversation will be inside jokes and references. Absolutely. That is another language. Absolutely. Yep. And so these, these conditions here, as you try to assimilate another language, only to realize that, <clears throat> only to realize that none of the rules that you think language is made of ever applied to the language you're looking at. It's 
if I could say it in a sentence, it is a right brain language for a left brain world. Mm. We, the left brain seeks to hammer down to a certainty, to narrow. And this is what we've done with language. We have codified and quantified every single thing. And so it's nigh impossible to untrain that mm -hmm. as a people. And one thing that I'd, I'd like for um, everybody to maybe pay more attention to just in their in their day-to-day -day life as they read, as they listen to other people, as they think, think uh, the words that they think with, those are so supremely important, um, is consider this. What concerning what I just said about universal words and how does a wall wall things like that. OK, the language that we speak today, for the most part, is unfortunately massively fractured. Now, I have a page that I found, actually, a guy compiled a list of words in the English language that can be used as noun, verb and adjective adverb. I don't know if I've sent that to you. But I'll tell you what, I will find it. I have it in one of my favorites, and I'll post it. It's very interesting. Because if you read through yeah. that, if you read through that, something that you're going to, you should notice, is that how unfortunate it is that all the rest of the words, or most of the rest of the words that we use in day-to-day -day English aren't like that. They're they're schismed, they're fractured. Um, it's why you have to constantly reference um, dictionaries and thesauruses and lexicons because they are fractured. If I have a word like, it doesn't really matter. I mean, like a cow. Um, the thing is, I have to come up with a whole set of verbs and descriptives and other nouns to tell you a lot about that cow. However, if the word cow was actually presented in meaningful, intelligent glyphs, and those, when combined, gave us the attributes of that animal, we wouldn't need to search so long and hard for all kinds of other words to describe it, we would have a great deal of its own description, actions, and attributes right within its own name. And that's one of the big problems that we have with our current language. And it is one of the big problems that we have with um, trans translating from the language used in the Bible to the language we use today. And I would like to point out how ironic it is that I'm actually using English to convey to everybody how bad English is as a language. I think there's some kind of weird looping irony to that. Um, but it is. It's so unfortunate. It is. Um, I can't, I can promise everybody this, though, that the more time that you spend with Obrey, and you don't have to... You don't actually have to have the Bible written out in Obrey, which I, I am little by little working on. I, I have Genesis posted at the website. Actually, somebody else wrote that who had been assisting me a couple, a couple few years ago. And she was a great help. She really was. 
unfortunately, I haven't spoken to her in a while. Um, I think things got kind of uh, busy, hectic, and hot uh, because she was in a country where a lot of things are going to crap, which is basically everywhere. Um, <laughs> everywhere, always. Yeah. However, I, I, I would like to write the rest of it in Obrey so you can see it. I'm not claiming that these characters are absolute, and I'm not claiming that they're done and finished and complete. However, I did glean the basic um, form of them from a lot of old references, um, not least of which would be like the Lost Luna Stone, um, that large stone found in a, a riverbed in New Mexico. Um, also there's the, uh, oh, it's not Akron. It's, uh, it was a small sort of like an ossuary box that was found near uh, a place in Ohio. And now the yes. name of it, you know, yeah, um, it, it I, slips my I mind. know what you're referring to. I can't remember either. Mm -hmm. That and a number of other American artifacts that have either what I call uh, Obri or Aramee. So for people who aren't familiar, Hebrew, Aramaic, ancient Hebrew, ancient Aramaic, or Phoenician. I mean, you know, it depends on what scholar you ask. Is that Hebrew? Is that Aramaic? Is that Phoenician? Is that Moabite? Anyways, um, so <laughs> it, it doesn't mean that, you know, the that that character, the form of the character that I'm presenting is the end all be all. But I think that it's pretty darn close because what we're looking for is we're going to see what Olivet says about the character. We're going to see what he has to say about the words. Um, and then I'm going to be doing uh, a lot of commenting on what I think about him. And as you will be, as we go through this, and I think what we're going to do is we're going to merge not only understanding a bit about the mechanisms uh, and the tools of the sophist and the occultist, but I think we're going to emerge with a very good understanding of what we've lost in the realm of language and what we need to strive for in our understanding of Obri, or if you want to call it Paleo Hebrew, everybody is free to, to do as they wish. However, I plan on making a case uh, over these episodes for how important it is that we establish at some point as soon as possible um, a very homogenous system of pronunciation. The phonetics are important. Some people say they're not. They are. Phonetics are important because they have everything to do with what glyphs, what words you're implanting in someone else's mind. I'm not saying at this point in time they're not super, super important. The Hebrew pronunciation chart that I published, it's still a work in progress. It's a rule of thumb. It's, it's meant to sort of help. Um, but, you know, phonetics are important. Um, but I'll be making, you know, a lot of arguments for these things as we go. And if people can get this and they can read ahead and and just go read into the, the first part. So there's the very first part of the book. It's the Hebraic Tongue Restored Part First Introductory Dissertation. We both commented on a little because we've both read up through that. Currently, uh, I'm rereading it. I'm highlighting it and I'm noting it. Um, in my PDF program. 
And so there's some things that I want to uh, on the next one to to dig deeper into. But I do want to give everybody who is willing the the time to pre-read these things before we discuss them. So this first part, the introductory dissertation, it goes from, let's see, technically, I guess it would be page, real quicker, it would be page 16 uh, on the PDF, and it is going to go through page, and it's still going, <laughs> I'm actually it's, scrolling uh, it's through lengthy. it. Yeah, I think it uh, it winds up in the fifties or sixties. Yes, I'm, if you go by the page numbers oh, here of the book proper, it is a twenty-page long dissertation. Yeah, and in in the PDF, it ends at page sixty-six. <laughs> Weird. Um, yeah. So so on the on the PDF. Right, right. Um, the book proper, of course, is is numbering things differently. Some PDFs are set up or programmed um, to where they follow uh, their page counter that they give you follows uh, very accurately the the pages cited at the beginning of the book. Um, I don't know if that's the case here. So it's basically page eighteen to sixty six. Oh, that's crazy. Right. Six times three is 18. <laughs> oh, I wonder if I wonder if we're going to see a lot of that. I'm not trying to like spook anybody. That's just funny. It, it's just because there are coincidences. So who it's knows? A nine and that's three a PDF reduction. Thing. I mean, that's it's fairly synchronous. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, given the fact that this guy was such a huge influence on these occultists, I wouldn't be surprised if we see a certain amount of numerology used in here. That you know what? That's one of my biggest weaknesses, to be honest, is I've never been able to put a lot of time into studying numerology. You know, Obery doesn't use numbers. There's no numbers used in Obery. They're words that represent quantity or value. Mm -hmm. There's no numbers. And once again, the Obery not using numbers numbers are directly a faculty of the left brain to be exact in your count is to nail something down to a certainty to narrow and compress it so it's it's not strange to me to see that that the obery doesn't need to do this to convey an idea yeah it doesn't and and you're going to find um passages where Basically, it's kind of funny. All right, so the 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 word that's used for the number one hundred is uh, ma'e. Now, I've commented on this, I believe, in my Bible and Obri series. Is more often than not, when you find a word that has the suffix a and e, or our modern a and e, it's usually going to be the substance or product of perhaps an action or its root, its parent root. So in this case, the root is only a single glyph, the M. Um, Thus, a hundred is a substantial or a substance of, and your M being a representation of water, 
or source um i want to say come on what's that um instability or chaos it has all of those connotations wow so so number flow and flux all in one Mm -hmm. and then you put that ae on and you you simply have a product of the denotation and more connotation of the m glyph so that right there is your 100 you know you also have go ahead what is uh the numeral m roman oh the roman numeral m is i cannot um, recall is that i don't want to be a jerk and say 50 but i thought it's 50 uh but it may no it's a thousand it's not 50 it's a thousand let me i'll double check that i don't know roman numerals very well either um the thing is l is 50 and that always got me i never understood that but strange the the connotation between the obery n and the numeral n yeah from one there if they're so close in in transliterations Mm -hmm. okay i'm sorry so 100 is c right at a c note Mm -hmm. a century yeah exactly that's uh Um, they it used to be a century before it was called a hundred now 1000 is m yeah that's why all of those dates you know when you get an old book it's going to start with M and it's usually going to start with MC, uh-huh. you know, which the thousand place, then the hundred place. Uh, and then it's going to get long from there. Yes. A thousand is M in, uh, in Obri. So 100 is M. Um, 1000 is actually Allop. Um, it's, really? it's the same word. Yeah. It's the same word that they, they say, the ah or our modern equivalent a is named that's what the masrites actually named it was aleph they call it aleph that's a thousand now that aleph can actually be um it can be uh represented in a number of ways uh it can be alephim as thousands um you can see the aleph repeated for even greater numbers than that and and that's where you start getting into um, some questionable, I'd say questionable passages, questionable words. Okay, is is this really mm-hmm. that quantity? I actually have a whole sheet where I wrote out a lot about numbers, and I'm trying to find that right now while we're talking because it's really interesting. Something that we're going to find, I hope maybe we'll get into this here, or at least I'll be able to in the Bible in Obrey. Um, episodes is the fact that, for instance, the numbers uh, in Obri, not only are they represented as numbers, they're actual words. Uh, the funny thing is that w- the, the, the interesting thing is what is associated with those numbers. Uh, the number for one, ahad, well, what's associated with it is a blade, a sharp knife. What's associated with two, which would be shani, is tusks or teeth. 
Now, what you have associated with four is arbo, which would be the idea of crouching on all fours and so on and so forth. Just There's, like you said, so the word is an adjective, is a noun. Yeah. It's, it's a thing, it is a connotation, it is an action. Yeah. Which, uh, Fabry actually mentions this sort of thing. He does. Um, in the very opening sentences of his dissertation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and one thing we're, we're going to find is he, um, like most sophists and occultists, he gives us, um, he starts with truth and mixes in enough error to throw you off the scent. Oh, he certainly has been distractory uh, as he floats between points. His transitory sentences between his claims in the dissertation mm -hmm. are enough to distract you. It, they've sent me on a couple <laughs> yeah. hunts already. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just to be familiar. Yeah. And so for for someone who is completely unfamiliar with the things that he says in this, you could spend a month just learning what he's talking about. Yeah. And <laughs> that's a month where you're not focusing on his claims and his evidence. I know. It's a waste, right, a waste of time. Um, and I'm hoping that one one thing that I'll be able to bring to going through this is knocking the legs out of a lot of bad conceptions that he brings to it. Uh, for instance, the bad conception of who the Hebrews were, who the Jews are, um, Judaism, what he conceives it as being. Now, he doesn't come off as an apologist for Judaism or Jewry. In fact, he tends to come off very detached. However, I don't think he's all that detached. And the thing is, he does repeat a lot of the old chestnuts uh, concerning Palestine as the land of Israel, concerning uh, oh, the uh, the Hebrew language was lost or and changed by the scribe Ezra, which is a whole pile of manure. That's garbage. There's no support for that whatsoever. But we'll get into that. I mean, we'll we'll get into that as we go. And um, you know, I'm I'm hoping that for those who don't understand uh, yet um, the subtle nature of some of these assertions that a lot of authors who ought to know better, like Olivet himself, uh, they insert these things and they do tend to either throw you off a certain track or scent, or they try to get your mind on uh, the trail, the scent that they want you on. And that's what we want to do. We want to keep our brains uh, free of their influence because occultists and sophists, they're always going to steer our minds in the direction they want them to go. And we want to learn what we can, but not be steered in that direction. So I think we're going to accomplish it as we go. So pages 18 to 66 are his introduction to this. As Nathan has already mentioned, there's a lot of really interesting stuff that he says there. Please, if you have time and you're a reader, uh, or if you're not a reader, just try. Just go in and try. You get to... Uh, 
you get to points in here, like Nathan was saying, where he uses transitory sentences to really throw you off. Hey, once you've read it a couple of times, and if it either isn't clicking or you see that he's making a claim that you can't immediately validate, screw it, move on. Now, if you have, um, most of you can get Adobe Acrobat, uh, just the, you know, the unlicensed version. Um, I don't know if you can highlight in it or not. Uh, I have the, the DC licensed version, so there's a lot of things I can do in it that, you know, you can't do in the unlicensed. Um, and there are other PDF readers, I believe, out there. I've just never used them. Um, follow the link, click on it, read. Uh, Nathan and I are going to give it two weeks before we do the next one, just so everybody can get this, uh, read on it, think on it before we come back to the next one. I don't know if it'll always be two week breaks, but it would work just fine for me because sometimes me trying to produce the Bible in Obrey every week is just insane, especially when I'm doing a word study. Um, so that might be really good and it'll give everybody out there time to, uh, to do any of this reading and think about it, uh, before we put out the next one. So there yes, you go. Distraction, distraction or no two weeks is, is uniquely suitable for this time of year. There's, there's a lot mm. in the way of distraction. Yeah, now, absolutely. Um, a bit of discernment to be used when reading this, um, it's what I do with, with most old texts that I read. I have to separate myself from the ideas by saying, as I go through this, this is what they thought at the time, or at least this is what, this is how up to date they were to keep in mind that this being so old, if anything is going to be invalidated, mm -hmm. the older it is, the longer it's had to be corrected. Yeah. He will make such as this. Sir William Jones, who believes as I do that the original books of Zoroaster were lost. And that's neat. His, his sentence goes on to encompass a paragraph where he mm -hmm. will say nine separate things. But there, mm -hmm. he and Sir William Jones believe that there is a lost book of Zoroaster. Mm -hmm. That's what mm -hmm. they thought at the time. That that simple tool of discernment can stop your distraction. Take a pause, highlight. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I, I'm honestly really excited. This is, this is a dense book as far as ideas and a glimpse into the time in which it was wrote are concerned. Yes. Yeah, I agree. I agree a hundred percent. So I'm looking forward to it. I'm sure once everybody hears this, they're looking forward to it. It's uh, it's November the 26th today. I am going to try to have this published within 48 hours. I know we got Thanksgiving and everything coming up. That's why I'm going to try to have it published as our first episode before Thanksgiving. Because once that comes and uh, I'm going to work through the weekend, it's just going to be insane. So... Uh, we'll try to get that out right away so that everybody has plenty of time before the next one to check out the book, to listen to this, to, to weigh some things, to think about it and all that. And, um, before we wrap it up, uh, Nathan, do you have anything more to add? 
Not a single thing. I have two weeks to dig into this and yeah. come with the conclusions I've found. So, I mean, I have my work cut out for me. <laughs> we both do. Absolutely. And anybody who chooses to go along with us and, and read these things and uh, give us feedback. Those of you who are involved in Nathan's group, obviously, you know how to get a hold of him. You can give him feedback. Everybody who is familiar with my work and my channels and stuff, you know how to get a hold of me. You know, you can leave comments or you can mail me at the uh, John at Obery project dot info. That's project with a K. Um, and so then until next time we eagerly await and are looking forward to it. So we'll see everybody then take care. <laughs>